So we're on chapter 11 called Freedom from Cyclic Existence, which I think everybody wants. Hmm? Okay. So let's visualize the merit field, all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and lineage lamas, all the holy beings in front of us. And they're all looking at us with kindness and compassion. And we're surrounded by all the sentient beings. Let's generate our motivation. So if every time some sentient being does something that we don't like or don't agree with, if every time that happens we get upset and we get angry and we want to We feel the need that we have to correct them instantaneously and put them in their place. Otherwise, the whole world's going to collapse. Then we need to step back. And this is where the practice of fortitude is quite important. Because we can... We can spend a lot of time upset at others, even upset at ourselves. And that uh, doesn't really cause anything productive to happen. We're unhappy, we're on edge, we can't listen to other people. And they're unhappy, they're on edge, and they have a hard time hearing what other people are saying, too. Whereas if we practice fortitude, remember that everybody wants happiness, nobody wants suffering. And yet, just like us, We do a lot of unhappy things, non-virtuous actions in our attempt to be happy. So just as we do that, so do others. And just as we want others to be tolerant and forgiving towards us, then it makes sense that we should cultivate tolerance and forgiveness towards others. Because holding a grudge doesn't harm the other person, it harms us. Whereas forgiveness, we put down our anger 
which is more conducive for our own happiness. And then we really try to communicate with others with a kind heart. So let's remember that and try and put it into practice. We're all bodhisattva wannabes. And so to actually become bodhisattvas, we need to master our anger through the practice of fortitude. And so with a bodhicitta motivation to benefit all sentient beings rather than retaliate against them and hate them, then let's generate the aspiration to become Buddhas to benefit them in the best way. So we finished chapter 10 last time. We're just starting chapter 11 today. So it's freedom from cyclic existence. So earlier we've been going into quite a bit of depth about what cyclic existence is. Yeah. And exploring the four truths, true dukkha, or unsatisfactory situations, the true cause of it the true cessation, and the true path to that cessation. Okay, so His Holiness starts this chapter off. The six attributes of the four truths spoken of in chapter one tell us that true cessation, as exemplified by nirvana, has four aspects. So first, it is the cessation of the continuum of afflictions. There are seeds and the karma that causes rebirth. So those three constitute the uh, true origin of dukkha. So this is the cessation of all of those. Second, yeah, true cessation is true peace, the state of total tranquility that is completely free from all afflictive obscurations. So that's actually possible to attain. Three, it is magnificent. Trusations are magnificent because we have reached ultimate satisfaction. So that's an interesting thing to think about. What does satisfaction mean? In samsara, we... As Mick Jagger said, I can't get no satisfaction. Okay. So what does, you know, ultimate or true satisfaction really mean? Does it mean we get everything that we want? Or does it mean that we overcome our craving? 
because we usually think when we don't have what we want, the problem is outside. Yeah, I want that object and I can't get it. But we never question um, the mind that wants that object and never explore that mind that wants because the mind that craves is not a very happy mind. It's a very dissatisfied mind. Yeah, we all know what craving is, don't we? (laughs) We've experienced it. Yeah, and you crave and you want and you want and you can't get what you want. And so the problem is not really that we can't get what we want. The problem is the craving to start with. Okay. So the cessation of craving, again, it doesn't mean that we just sit there like bumps on a log because we don't want anything. It means that rather than being controlled by craving, which is based on distorted views, yeah, we can look at things realistically and then with a kind heart think about uh, what to do that would be beneficial for the greatest number of beings. Mm-hmm. Okay, but think about satisfaction, what it means. And then four is true cessations, our freedom, because we have definitely emerged from cyclic existence. So we know when we're in cyclic existence, we're trapped. Yeah, we're controlled by our afflictions and karma. So freedom is the emergence from cyclic existence which isn't that we come out of some place on earth and move to another place. It isn't physical emergence. It's uh, we are emerging from our own uh, afflicted, polluted mind. So nirvana is our goal, and the true path to attain it that is held in common by all the Buddhist traditions constitutes the Dharma jewel. The word Dharma has many meanings depending on the context. I think it has 12, 10 or 12 meaning, meanings. It's quite a, a diverse word. When we say Dharma jewel, it, here Dharma means to hold or to prevent us from falling into dukkha, from falling into unsatisfactory conditions. From this perspective, even the path of the initial practitioner is the Dharma in that it prevents us from falling into the suffering of unfortunate realms. Okay? So remember when we talk about the the initial practitioner, the middle practitioner, the advanced practitioner, they all have uh, something very specific that they want to uh, emerge out of and something specific that they want to, to uh, aim for. And then also um, different practices that they do to attain that. So, uh, you know, the initial level practitioner wants to be free of the lower rebirth, to attain a higher rebirth, 
And so they practice ethical conduct. Yeah, a middle um, level practitioner wants to be free of all of samsara to attain liberation. And so they practice the three higher trainings. And then the advanced practitioner wants to uh, come out of or not get stuck in their own personal piece of nirvana. And instead, they want to attain Buddhahood. And so they practice bodhicitta and the, the paramitas, the perfections, uh, in order to, to attain Buddhahood. Okay. So all of, for all of them, the Dharma is the, the path that they practice and the cessation of whatever it is that they want to stop, be it lower rebirth or samsara or uh, getting stuck in their own personal piece of nirvana. Okay? Everybody here following? Is it, it's important to remember this because if you can remember the, this kind of outline, then whatever dharma teaching you have uh, you know where it fits on the path, and you don't get confused about the order of what to practice and how all the different teachings and all the different meditations fit together so that one person can practice them. Okay. Okay. So more broadly, Dharma... Uh, holds or prevents us from experiencing all kinds of dukkha. This is the role of true paths and true cessations, which together constitute the Dharma jewel. Okay, so Dharma jewel does not mean the text. Okay, it's referring to the realizations in the mind of an Arya being. So that's important because it's the real Dharma jewel that is uh, the actual refuge. Because when we're able to actualize that Dharma jewel in our own continuum, then we are free from dukkha. Okay. But the texts represent the Dharma jewel, and so we respect them. So in general, true paths consist of the three higher trainings in ethical conduct, concentration, and wisdom. And those three contain the eightfold path. So more specifically, the wisdom directly realizing emptiness is the counterforce that eliminates the first link ignorance and directly brings liberation. So first link of the 12 links of dependent arising. So one moment of this wisdom is not sufficient to remove all deeply entrenched afflictions that have disturbed the mind from beginningless time. You know, some people hear, yeah, oh, the realization that of emptiness, that frees us. And so instantly, yeah, oh, okay, I realize it. Then the next moment, I'm free from samsara. Yeah, we, we think of our push-button mentality where results come very quickly. Yeah, but in Dharma, when you consider that 
you know, the origins of, of samsara are deeply rooted in our mind, and they've been there since beginningless time, to expect them all to disappear due to, you know, one glimpse of ultimate reality is a little bit unrealistic. Okay? So it's a whole path of practicing and again and again uh, meditating on emptiness, on selflessness. And as we meditate on it and develop that realization, it becomes uh, stronger and stronger and can eliminate deeper and deeper levels of afflictions. Okay. Okay, because uh, continual habituation with this wisdom is necessary, we need to cultivate single-pointed concentration or samadhi, serenity or shamatha, that can focus on emptiness in a sustained manner, free from distraction. And then, of course, we need the wisdom that accurately sees reality. So this concentration must be free of two principal faults, laxity and restlessness, which prevent us from focusing with stability and clarity on the object of meditation for a long time. Okay, so restless, when our mind is restless, we can't, it's not stable. It can't stay on the object of meditation. When our mind is very lax and lethargic and foggy, um, even very subtle laxity, then the clarity of the meditating mind is not very good. And so then it's, you know, you may focus on on uh, uh, emptiness, but you're not seeing it clearly, and your mind is you know, on its way out, <laughs> so to speak. Okay. The mental factors of mindfulness and introspective awareness are crucial to overcome laxity and restlessness, and these two mental factors are initially cultivated in the uh, training of ethical conduct, okay? So to gain the wisdom that we need to overcome the obstacles to liberation, we need concentration, yeah? To gain uh, the concentration, which depends on having very strong mindfulness and introspective awareness to counteract the laxity and the restlessness, to have those, then we need to develop them, first of all, by uh, in the higher training of ethical conduct. Okay. To abide in pure conduct, we must hold our precepts with mindfulness and closely monitor the actions of our body, speech, and mind with introspective awareness. So this is really true. You know, ethical conduct isn't just a thing of like, Okay, uh, yeah, I'm not going to lie again. Okay, I'm not going to get angry again. Uh, You know, I'm not going to get drunk again. Um, You know, it's it's not just saying that kind of thing or making the resolution. We have to have the tools to actually do that. 
Okay. So mindfulness focuses on our precepts, for example. You know, the precept to not harm others, the precept to tell the truth, and so on. And uh, and then introspective awareness, you know, it observes our body, speech, and mind to see if, in fact, we are abandoning those actions or if our motivation or our intention has gotten corrupt and we're doing something else instead. Okay, And if uh, uh, introspective awareness finds that our mind is in la-la land or doing something else, then it uh, calls up one of the counterforces, one of the antidotes to whatever f- affliction has taken us away from the object of meditation. And then we practice that antidote and rebalance our mind. Okay. Having developed some degree of mindfulness and introspective awareness by observing ethical conduct, we can then employ these two to identify and suppress laxity and restlessness and to deepen concentration. With strong concentration, wisdom becomes stable and uh, becomes a stable and powerful counterforce to eradicate ignorance. In short, all three higher trainings assist one another, and all three are necessary to attain liberation. Okay, so there's no shortcut out of the three higher trainings. We can't say. Oh, wisdom is too high, it's too difficult to understand, so I'm just going to practice the first two and attain liberation through them. Mm, No, that's not going to work. Okay. It's like having two two of the agreements to ingredients to make a cake, but uh, you're missing some other ingredients. You're not going to get a cake. Okay. So then the next section is the stages leading to liberation and full awakening. So attaining spiritual realizations occurs over time. Learning the stages leading to liberation and full awakening gives us an idea of the process of spiritual transformation we will undergo and the practices that will uh, bring about the desired spiritual progress. There are many similarities in the paths and fruits of the shravakas or uh, hearers, solitary realizers, and bodhisattvas. There are also many differences in them as well. Okay. So the you know the thing of learning about the paths and stages, and you know, it gives us an idea of how we progress on the path, you know what we need to practice to develop what kind of realization, and then to go the step beyond that, what we need to practice to do that. Okay, so it's it's not a disorderly uh, process. You know, of, oh, well, today, let's see, I feel like practicing uh, meditating on refuge, and tomorrow I will meditate on fortitude, and the day after that I will do precious human life, and, you know, just kind of haphazardly all over the place, not knowing how all these uh, meditations fit together 
to uh, to make a cohesive path and a cohesive practice for us. Okay, before entering one of the three vehicles, three vehicles, Shravaka, or here vehicle, solitary realizer vehicle. And then we say bodhisattva vehicle, but actually uh, it's the bodhisattva and Buddha vehicle, okay? Because the first four paths of, of it are for bodhisattvas. The last path is the Buddha's path, okay? So before entering one of the three vehicles, the Shravaka, Solitary Realizer, and Bodhisattva vehicle, we must have a correct and stable understanding of the Buddhist worldview. Okay, that's really important. If we don't have a good understanding of the Buddhist worldview, yeah, then we don't know how the path works. It, it doesn't fit into our life and our experience. Yeah. So the the Buddhist worldview includes an understanding of rebirth, an understanding of karma, yeah, an understanding of of um, you know ethical conduct and and all these different kinds of things, yeah, that we we have to develop. Um, because if we just if you have a Christian worldview, for example. You may do Buddhist style meditations, but you're gonna you're not gonna come up with um, the realizations of the Buddhist path, yeah, because you don't have that worldview. Yeah. And this is important because sometimes people think, oh, it doesn't really matter what my worldview is. I can just sit down and meditate, and the truth is going to appear to me. Well, not exactly, you know. We have to understand like what it is that doesn't exist, that we think does exist, that we grasp onto, and then we have to understand why and how it doesn't exist and how to overcome that. So all of that is part of the Buddhist view, worldview. Yeah. If we don't have that, then you know, everything is just kind of mush. Yeah. So this is why, uh, you know, we often talk about the three kinds of wisdom, the wisdom that comes from hearing and studying teachings, the wisdom that comes from reflecting and meditating and reflecting and discussing them, and then the wisdom that comes from meditating on them. Okay, so one thing is we have to have a correct and stable understanding of the Buddhist worldview. Yeah, before entering any of the three vehicles. We also have to purify our mind and create a lot of merit. Okay, why? Well, because our mind is kind of like a garbage dump. Or you can, maybe we can say it more politely. Our mind is like a plot of earth, Okay. If that plot of earth is filled with weeds, yeah, that's like having a mind that's full of all sorts of seeds of negative karma. And, you know, what is going to grow in a plot of weeds? More weeds. Yeah, you're not going to get beautiful plants growing in that plot. 
So you need to purify the mind, take out, you know, or start start to overcome all the seeds of destructive karma that's there. And then, yeah, you may do that with your plot of earth, but if you're, if it's, uh, there's drought and you don't have enough water and there's no fertilizer and it's the dead of winter, uh, you still, nothing is going to grow in your plot. So that's why we need to create merit. Merit is like, uh, enriching the mind, fertilizing the mind, so that when we do listen to teachings, when we do reflect on their meanings, when we meditate on them, then we can have some experience of the teachings. So the purification and, and collection of merit are really important in that respect. And if we get stuck in our practice, sometimes we get stuck yeah, it's like your practice is going along and it's really interesting. And then at some point you just go, I'm not getting anywhere and I don't understand anything and I'm beginning to have some doubts. Okay. Um, and when our mind gets like that, then it's very uh, helpful to go back and do some purification practices and some practices to create merit. Yeah because that's what the mind needs at that time is, you know, clear away the obstacles, uh, you know, enhance the, the, uh, the good qualities, you know, so that our practice uh, can progress. Okay, so each vehicle has five paths. The paths of accumulation is the first, preparation, Seeing is the third, fourth, meditation, and fifth, the path of no more learning. So it's called no more learning because that is the uh, goal of that particular vehicle. You've reached the final stage of that vehicle. So practitioners enter the Shravaka path of accumulation. So that's the first path of the Shravaka vehicle. Okay, when their aspiration to attain liberation remains stable day and night. Okay, does how long does your aspiration for liberation remain stable? How often does it even arise? Yeah, just getting that very first thing, the aspiration for liberation and then making it something stable, that's already, you know, a, a big achievement. Okay. It's a big achievement, but it's not sufficient. Yeah. Um, but imagine for a minute, and this kind of imagining of, of having realizations can be very help, helpful. Imagine for a minute that you have that aspiration for, for liberation 24-7, and that you're fed up with samsara day and night. Yeah. How would your life be different? How would the feeling in your mind be different? How would your actions be different? Yeah. Do you think you'd be still acting and thinking the same way you are now? 
Now it would be very different, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? So, you know, take a few minutes and really think, okay, if I had, you know, full renunciation of samsara, I'm totally fed up with it. Yeah, I really want liberation. Then how are you going to spend your time? What are you going to be doing? Okay. What's going to be in your mind? So this gives us some kind of feeling of the the kind of qualities that we uh, can develop and that we want to develop and how, for example, I mean, if we had full-fledged, the full-fledged aspiration for liberation, practice would be so easy, wouldn't it? I mean, the the clock goes off in the morning and you are up and you're going and, you know, you're in that meditation hall, eager to meditate. You're not dragging your feet. You're not, you know, thinking, can I go back to bed without anybody noticing? Um, no, you're, you know, you're up and eager and enjoying your practice, for one, yeah? And then just think of how the rest of your day would be different if you really had that aspiration for liberation. Yeah. When if people came around, came along, and they started criticizing you, yeah. If if you had the aspiration for liberation day and night, how are you gonna feel? You know, what's your feeling gonna be in response to people's criticism? Yeah, you don't care about it. It's not important. Yeah. It's something so trivial, so meaningless, that you're not going to waste one moment uh, feeling insulted or feeling angry about any of it. Yeah, because you realize, oh, I have a precious human life. I want to use it to practice the Dharma and, you know, arrive at liberation. Why am I wasting my time getting angry at somebody? Yeah, because getting angry really is a waste of time. Okay, and here's where you can really see the difference between our ordinary mind and a mind that has that aspiration. Because an ordinary mind thinks, my reputation is really important. And if somebody criticizes me and if they insult me, my reputation is falling flat and what are people going to think about me and how am I going to get ahead in the world and nobody's going to respect me and I won't get a job and so I won't have any wealth and you know my life is going to be a catastrophe yeah and then then you worry and fret about all of that all the time yeah and you're anxious about it happening even though nothing of it has happened so you spend your life in anger and anxiety and do anger and anxiety do anything to help your state of mind? Do they get you closer to liberation or enlightenment? Not, no. Yeah. 
So when we really have that strong aspiration, all we need to do is like think of that and it's like, okay, I'm not bothering to waste one moment being angry at somebody because they insulted me or criticized me. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? People could come along. They could like spew who knows what kind of words at you. And you're not going to waste your time responding. Yeah. Unless for some reason or another it would benefit the other person. Okay. Practitioners enter the bodhisattva path of accumulation when bodhicitta spontaneously arises in relation to any and all sentient beings. Yeah. So imagine that for a minute. Yeah. You see a bodhi bug who has flown off somewhere. Oh, yeah. So you have bodhi bug, you have mosquitoes around you that are driving you crazy. Or you have a, a, a child around you who is howling or you know, and instead of just like, I can't stand this. Again, the ordinary mind, you know, instead what arose whenever you saw any sentiment, even people you would normally be jealous of, you're not jealous of them anymore. Your your response to them is, I want to benefit them. Yeah. They're drowning in cyclic existence, and I want to do something to help them. Uh, so you deve- you generate that aspiration for full awakening, and you know your mind has compassion for those other beings, so you're not irritated at them. Okay, so wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's let's just pick an, an outrageous situation. Let's say you had that mind of bodhicitta, and you happen to be walking past the Capitol on January sixth, and all hell is breaking out at the Capitol. How are you going to respond? Are you going to pick up a pipe or a stone and join in? Yeah. Are you going to go, oh, those people are so screwed up. What in the world are they doing? Or are you going to have a compassionate mind and then see if there's any way that you can help to settle things down? Can you imagine standing there and looking at the chaos? And we've all seen videos of it, haven't we? So you're looking at the chaos and your mind has only compassion for those beings who are so confused. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Okay. So in all three vehicles, practitioners go from the path of accumulation to the path of preparation when they have attained the union 
of serenity and insight focused on emptiness. So this is still a conceptual realization, but through repeated practice, they remove the veil of conceptuality and realize emptiness or selflessness directly. At this point, they attain the path of seeing and become aryas. So the demarcation, you know, of entering the second path, the path of preparation, is having a a conceptual inferential realization of emptiness, but not any old conceptual inferential realization. It's one that is is, uh, with the union of serenity and insight. Okay? So that's, you know, your mind isn't just flitting by emptiness. You're able to really focus on it with concentration, and you have a correct understanding of what you're focusing on. Emptiness isn't just nothingness, okay? It's not uh, just not having any thoughts or conceptions in the mind. It's quite different from that. Okay, so that's the conceptual realization. That is the demarcation for entering the second path, the path of preparation. Then through repeated meditation on that, you're able to remove the conceptuality, yeah, the conceptual appearance, and perceive emptiness directly. And that is the demarcation of entering the path of seeing the third path, and it's at that time that you become an Arya. Okay? So an Arya is, uh, yeah, somebody who has realized the truth directly, yeah, realized the ultimate nature of reality directly. Okay, so let's look specifically now at the, the Shravaka vehicle. So stream enters the first level of Shravaka Aryas, are on the path of seeing of the Shravaka vehicle and have eliminated acquired afflictions. So acquired afflictions are those that we learned in this life, yeah, through following wrong um, philosophies or wrong psychologies. Now we may say, oh, that should be, you know, not too difficult, yeah, removing acquired afflictions. I just learned them this life and... You know, I just think about it a lot. I know that's very false, and you know, I can just put it down. Not so easy, yeah, because a lot of our assumptions and preconceptions that we hold very dear that we have not even realized are consumptions, uh, assumptions, and preconceptions, yeah. We haven't even realized that they're there. They control our mind a lot. Yeah. A lot of that conditioning that we had as kids, you know, what we were taught really can make an impact. Okay. So if you were taught, for example, 
there, the Samkhya philosophy says that there is a primal substance and everything originates out of that primal substance. Yeah? Then that would be your worldview. You know? Some primal substance somewhere and me and you and everything just comes out of it and dissolves back into it, you know, and then understand their path to liberation, okay? But you won't wind up with liberation, okay? Or, uh, you know, if you were brought up in a theistic religion, then you you learned uh, when you were young that there's a creator who has the power to send you to heaven and hell and will do that. Yeah, and then, of course, you're a bit anxious, you're fearful. Yeah, you want to please that creator, but you're not quite sure how. Yeah, so that's all stuff that's learned in this life, but it hangs around in, in our mental continuum. Okay. So, uh, yeah, attaining the path of seeing you see reality directly, but that only that has the power at that stage, even though you're perceiving reality directly, to eliminate only the acquired afflictions. It's not until you get to the fourth path, the path of meditation, that we start uprooting the innate afflictions, yeah, which are even Deep, more deeply ingrained in our mind because the innate ones have been there since beginningless time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, the stream enters have eliminated the acquired afflictions. Afflictions may arise in their minds and they may still create destructive karma. It's hard to imagine that happening for someone who's realized emptiness. But, however, this karma is not strong enough to project a rebirth in samsara, so they no longer begin new sets of 12 links. Okay, so they can create negative karma, but it's not strong enough to to be that second link of formative action that causes another samsaric rebirth. Okay. So the stream enters still have the seeds of projecting karma from many other sets of 12 links on their mind stream. And when these are activated by craving and clinging, those uh, stream enters take rebirth. Okay. So they're still reborn under, you know, the influence of the karma they created in the past, although they aren't creating any new karma for rebirth. Yeah. So although they are not liberated from cyclic existence, they are not fully under its sway in the way ordinary beings are. Okay. So stream enters can no longer be born in unfortunate realms. That's a relief, isn't it? Although they still experience suffering and sickness when born as humans. Continuing to practice, stream enters gradually reduce layers of afflictions. 
when sensual attachment and malice have been subdued, to a certain degree they become once-returners, which are so called because they will take only one more rebirth in samsara. So once-returners may still create destructive karma, although it's very weak, and it certainly isn't going to be strong enough to, to propel a rebirth. Okay, so there's, yeah, you can see it's a gradual path. Of course, with these, there's different people practice in different ways, and so different people can go through these stages in more or less time, too. It's not all cast in concrete. Yeah, there's a topic that you study called the 20 Sanghas, that if you like math, you're going to love this topic because it's, uh, you know, explaining all these ways of matching, uh, mixing and matching how you progress along the path and gain the realizations. It's really kind of fun if, if you like that kind of thing. Yeah. Makes you think. Okay, so continuing to practice, yeah, uh, yeah. So the stream enters became once returners when they've subdued uh, their, they haven't freed their mind of the sensual attachment and malice, but they've lessened it. Okay, so ordinary beings are attached to the self. And while dying, the fear that they will no longer exist arises, followed by craving for samsaric aggregates. This precipitates the bardo state. Attachment to self may arise in stream enters and once returners, but investigating it with wisdom, they cast it out. It does not, uh, and this attachment to self doesn't arise in the non-returners, which is the third stage of the Shravaka path. Okay. So this is, you know, to when, when you think that, you know, one day we're going to die, and if we're not very prepared, and we haven't really contemplated the, the Dharma very much, then at the time of death, there could be a huge fear that we're just going to disappear. Because while we're dying, you know, we're losing sense, our senses are absorbing, we don't have that power. We're separating from friends and relatives, from our body, from our wealth and possessions. And, you know, we don't, when you think about how you create an identity and how you have a sense of self, it's very related to our environment. Okay. So we can see this thought that we are autonomous beings is is not it, because our identity arises in relationship to each other and in relationship to societal values and societal way of thinking and so on and so forth. And all of that we gain through our senses. So when our senses start to lose power and we're not cognizing external objects and people, then we don't have all of that reinforcement in you know through which we um 
what's the word, you know, uh, create our identity and, and put ourselves. Okay. It's, it's kind of like, um, well, you know, think of getting on a plane and going to some place where you don't know anybody, you don't speak the language, you don't know even what the beings there look like. Yeah, you don't know the culture of the place and, and how to behave. You don't know anything. And you're separated from where you came from, and then you're plopped down in this new environment where you don't know what the heck's going on. Yeah, that's going to be kind of challenging, huh? So if we, if we have a lot of attachment to the self at the time of, of death, when we're leaving everything here that gives us our purpose and our sense of who we are and going completely into the unknown, that could be a little bit rattling if you're grabbing on to, you know, yourself and you're attached to yourself and I, you know, me and my happiness and who am I and how do I fit in and where do I belong and how do I manage all of this? Yeah, you can see how, how scary that might be. Hmm. Okay. But the stream enters and once uh, returners, if that arises at the time of death, they can identify it as attachment to self and put it down instead of getting like this. Okay. Once returners continue their practice, and when the five lower fetters, okay, which are view of a personal identity, doubt, rules of pra- uh, view of rules and practices, sensual desire and malice, when these five are eliminated, then those once returners become non-returners, and they are so-called as non-returners, because they are never again born in the desire realm. They don't return to the desire realm. Okay? So since destructive karma is created only in the desire realm, non-returners no longer create destructive karma. Okay? They still have some grasping at the self, but it's certainly not strong enough to create uh, negative t- karma or to propel um, uh, create the creating of karma that would cause another rebirth. So like stream enters and once returners, non-returners are still reborn under the power of afflictions and karma. When they abandon all afflictive obscurations completely, they attain the shravaka path of no more learning and become arhats, or liberated ones, foe destroyers. They've destroyed the foe of the afflictions. Okay, so arhats are those who have attained liberation 
and are totally free from cyclic existence. They can never fall back into samsara. Although arhats no longer create new karma to be born in samsara, the potency of previously created karmic seeds that could bring a samsaric rebirth remain intact. So those seeds of polluted karma are still on their mind stream. However, because they have eliminated all afflictions, those seeds cannot be nourished by craving and clinging, because craving and clinging have been eliminated. And so uh, those seeds do not bring new rebirths. So they're still, their mind still has some garbage in it, but it's not sufficient to, to cause a samsaric rebirth. Okay. Uh, karmic seeds of completing karma remain on an arhat's mind stream, and these may ripen. So propelling karma throws you into the rebirth. It, it, it determines what kind of body we have, what realm we're born into, and completing karma uh, influences all the different circumstances in our life. Okay, uh, what you look like, level of intelligence, all these kinds of things. Yeah, what family you're born into. Okay, so karmic seeds of uh, completing karma remain on Arhat's mind streams, and these may ripen. The most famous example of this occurred uh, to Mogliana, one of the Buddha's chief disciples. So many lifetimes ago, yeah, he had killed his parents. Although he had been born in the hell realm as a ripening result of that deed, the fruit of that karma had not yet been exhausted. Some non-Buddhists knew that Mogalayana was foremost among the Buddha's disciples in terms of his supernormal powers, and would use those powers to bring people to the Buddha Dharma. So jealous of the Buddha and his followers, these non-Buddhists directed some thugs to kill Mogliana. So Mogliana wished to spare them the non-virtuous karma of killing an arhat, because that's one of the five heinous actions. Uh, so to spare them of that karma, uh, of committing that karma, uh, Mogliana tried to use his supernormal powers to escape from the thugs. But due to the karmic seeds remaining, having, remaining from having killed his parents, his supernormal powers failed. The thugs beat him severely and left him for dead. Mogliana crawled to the Buddha, paid final homage to him, and passed away. Although he experienced physical pain from the beating, he was not angry or upset. Okay, so even though he was foremost in supernormal powers, because there was still the remnant of the karma from killing his mother, you know, on his mind stream. Uh, it, yeah, when those thugs attached him, it was fatal. 
While our hearts are alive, intentions arise in their minds, but they do not leave any traces. The Dharmapada compares the action of our hearts to the flight of birds across the sky. So here are some verses from the Dharmapada. Those who do not hoard anything and are wise regarding food, whose object is emptiness, the unconditioned freedom, their track cannot be traced like the path of birds in the sky. Those whose pollutants are destroyed and who are unattached to food, whose object is emptiness, the unconditioned freedom, their path cannot be traced like the path of birds in the sky. Okay, so the two verses are talking about, you know, two levels of, of, um, of people on that path. While alive, our hearts are free from samsara, although they still have the samsaric aggregates, especially the bodies they took at birth, which are the ripening results of polluted karma. Their bodies, even though their minds and they are arhats, yeah, their bodies are still true dukkha. Okay. So their nirvana is called nirvana with remainder of the polluted aggregates. Yeah, so you'll hear the term not nirvana of remainder. And so it's referring to somebody who has attained arhatship in their final life, and they're still alive, so they still have the polluted body that they were born with in that lifetime. Okay, when, when they die, all karmic seeds vanish on their own without a remedy being applied, although the latencies of affliction still remain on their mind streams leaving the five polluted aggregates and taking mental bodies that are not made of atoms, arhats now have a nirvana without remainder. So the remainder is the polluted body. Now they don't have that polluted body, but they have a mental body, okay? That is not made of this stuff. They remain meditating in peaceful nirvana for eons, until the Buddha arouses them and encourages them to become fully awakened Buddhas. They then generate bodhicitta, take birth by the power of prayers and aspirations, and enter the bodhisattva path. Okay, so that's the path for the, for, uh, the Shravakas. So we'll stop here. Um, questions, comments? Yeah. Still get confused about that. This to say that the Buddha wakes them up and encourages them, and they enter the Bodhisattva path, but they still have to generate Bodhicitta before that's true, yes. right? So yes. they enter it by then generate, having the intention yeah, to generate Bodhicitta. The Buddha bodhicitta. inspires them to generate Bodhicitta. When they do that, then they enter the Bodhisattva path of accumulation. I'm just wondering about uh, the fact that Maudagliana had spent time in the hell realm 
and that I was under the impression that you don't leave that realm until all of that karma has been exhausted. So he leaves the realm and then there's still some karma left over? Yes. Yeah. Because one karma can create many different results. So you may spend time in that hell realm, but that karma hasn't been exhausted, so it can uh, ripen in terms of other things. Yeah. So even as, as an arhat, he would have been doing yeah. all this purification. Yeah, and it's still... even as an arhat, because, yeah, the, the seeds of the karma are still there. They, have, they don't create any new karma, okay? But they have, all those seeds from beginningless lifetimes haven't necessarily been purified. Okay, that's so when they enter the bodhisattva path by generating bodhicitta, then they uh, begin to create a lot of karma. And the, by the force of the karma created under or with bodhicitta, then the realization of emptiness becomes stronger and then it can slowly uh, chip away at all the uh, latencies of afflictions. And then when they arrive at Buddhahood, then all that karma is, karmic, all those karmic seeds are finished. I'm still, um, maybe the question is, with these acquired afflictions, that the path of seeing removes those lifetimes of erroneous thinking, philosophies, doctrines, conditioning. Their, their basis is still seeing oneself as inherently existing. I mean, there's a sense of self that comes through all of that. So I'm still somewhat not clear about what's the difference between the the self or the erroneous thinking not tied to the innate afflictions, which is also a form of they're both forms of ignorance. I I I, I still don't understand acquired afflictions, why they're not okay. um why they're not tied into the innate, why they're not okay. we have we have acquired afflictions because we have innate afflictions. If the innate afflictions were were uh, removed, right, then we would never generate uh, acquired, acquired afflictions. afflictions. Because remember, acquired afflictions are the ones generated in this lifetime. The innate ones are the ones that we t we come with from previous lifetimes. So at the time of death, the acquired afflictions that we, the erroneous thinking and conspiracy theories all kind of fall away? Or they are a predisposition to perhaps think similarly? Okay, in the when you think of what the, the path of seeing is like, mm -hmm. okay, you have realized ultimate reality directly. Mm -hmm. Your mind can stay focused uh, in uh, uh, like drenched in that ultimate reality mm -hmm. um, for a long time because you have such good concentration. Okay, so you start by cleaning the grossest kind of dirt 
Right. It's like when you clean the house, you, you start with the grossest kind of dirt. So that's the acquired afflictions. And when you have that experience drenched in this, this direct understanding of ultimate reality, you're eliminating the acquired afflictions of just that life. Yeah, because the other reflections you have are innate ones. So all the acquired erroneous thinking of previous lives are all tied up or kind of... The, the erroneous thinking that you've had all throughout all your lifetimes, those are the innate afflictions. So let's say I grew up to uh, this life, I'm totally convinced of a lot of erroneous false narratives about how the world runs and who's in charge and... yeah. And and if I were to have a direct realization of emptiness in this life, that is what gets the limit. That I would cease to have well, any. Remember, you have you have gone through the path of accumulation. Yeah, yeah, where you have renunciation, then you have an inferential realization of emptiness on the path of preparation. Yeah, okay, then you practice some more. So that's one. That's a, a, a good deal of lifetimes you've right. spent in those two paths. Then you get to the path of of uh, seeing. Okay, and your perception of reality is direct, right? Okay? And you clean away the most superficial layers, which okay. have probably been damaged by the path of accumulation and path of preparation, because they, you're starting they, to. They've been affected, but because those two paths have not realized emptiness, mm -hmm. your realization does not have the force to cut the the acquired afflictions yet. Okay, when you look at, okay, let's say, uh, oh, what, anything, you know, just... Well, the, 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 the concept of, uh, the concept of God. Okay, so the concept of God, yeah. So, yeah, that's, you learn that in this life, but there are also, you know, because um, of self-grasping in the past, you're already predisposed to think of a permanent, you know, some kind of sub being with an inherently existent I who went poof and, and created you. Yeah, that potential to think like that it's the the innate self grasping is still there in your mind, yeah. So when you have that, then you meet somebody who teaches you some weird thing. It's easy to believe it. Getting you know when you keep when it's said that it's the innate afflictions that you've had since beginningless time, but we've had limitless erroneous. The, you know, misconceptions yeah. and the predispositions are there and they get refreshed and they get fueled by yeah, whatever. But, yeah, but all that is, is the innate on... afflictions. Okay. The stuff that you are born with, okay, the, the, the contamination on your mind that you are born with, that's the innate afflictions. Why can all these wrong views affect us in this life because we have the potential for them. They are deeply rooted mm -hmm. 
in our mind already. Mm-hmm. So it just needs a little bit of refreshing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to start becoming manifest in our mind again. Okay. Okay. I'll think of it. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to say this another way to see if I have it correctly, that any acquired afflictions in this life that have not been purified by a direct uh non-conceptual realization of emptiness will become innate um, Yeah, they just, the the energy just reinforces the innate afflictions. Energy. It isn't like, oh, you you develop these acquired afflictions this life, you die so those acquired afflictions get lost. No, they, you know, they are linked with the innate afflictions. Uh So it's by, not like they're divorced from inherent existence. No, yes. not at all. They're but they're learned in this lifetime. That. that what that's what makes them acquired. Yeah, yeah, they're learned in that lifetime. But how can you learn them? Because you have all those innate afflictions that are setting the thing. It, it's like if you have a dirty cloth, you may have, uh, you know, the innate stains that are really deeply rooted in the cloth. And then all it takes is a little something this life to make that stain darker. Yeah, something like that. Yeah? Okay, so basically it sounds like our innate afflictions make us more susceptible to take on different acquired afflictions mm-hmm. in different lifetimes. Is the, is, am I getting the right idea? So it's yeah. like this this innate affliction makes you more susceptible to um, following a theistic past or having that exactly. ideal. Exactly. So if we, it sounds like first we in, eliminate the acquired affliction afflictions, then the innate afflictions. But it also sounds like the way realizations work, you can have these realizations, but it sounds like potency also matters. Am I getting the right idea? Like, yeah. Well, yeah. What, what is the potency of your realization? Okay. You may have realized emptiness directly, but the realization of, of emptiness of somebody on the path of, of meditation is much stronger. It has a greater capability of removing uh, layers of afflictions than that same realization did on the previous path. Gotcha. So it's like using Dawn and then one's using Bleach. They both are realization, but one's stronger than the other one. Yeah. I, I mean, no offense to Dawn. Dawn is awesome. Yeah. yeah. This will be the last question. So they also meditate a lot on love, I think. The, the the shravakas they also meditate a lot on on love and compassion I think. Or um, different shravakas do some do some don't. Okay, and and what is the place of this kind of meditation on their path? Uh, love and compassion. Um, usually, they would use it to develop serenity. Yeah, so it would be the object of their meditation for concentration. Okay, let's dedicate.